Hello and welcome to another episode of Cloud Security Podcast. Today we spoke about monoliths. And for people who do not know what monolith is, this is the episode for you. And maybe you are someone who has been working on a product for 10 plus years, 15 plus years, and have seen that grow from before it was cloud. And that's kind of what we're talking about in this topic. I have John Kinsella from ScienceSense. He has been an active contributor for a lot of the open source projects, Docker, Container, Apache, you can name it, Kubernetes. He's been involved in everything. And I thought it was a great time to bring someone in who probably has a very varied skill to come and talk about what does it take to move a monolith into cloud, maybe even a monolith into microservices, and maybe even microservices to cloud native. What does that difference mean? And we spoke about some of these interesting things like, hey, if I have a monolith, why should I move that to cloud in the first place? Should I move the whole thing? Should I use my existing security product in the cloud or should I use something that I have been using on-premise for such a long time? What can DevSecOps look like in on-premise versus on cloud? I can keep going on, but it was really interesting from a perspective that if you are someone who probably is new to the world of cloud and has a lot of experience in the monolith kind of world, and if you're trying to find out how do I do security in this new cloud world and have some questions, this may be the episode for you. And if you are someone who are probably not aware of what Monolith is, this is an episode where you can get to know what Monolith is and what some of us, including me, have been talking about why we wanted to move to cloud. And you may have just gotten introduced to the amazing world of cloud APIs and everything. But what we realized is where we came from was a lot more difficult thing to kind of work with. So I hope you enjoy the episode. And if you do have any questions, feel free to kind of reach out or maybe drop a comment on the live feed or reach out to us directly on our website. But I appreciate you hanging out with us. This is another Cloud Native Month episode. So I appreciate you supporting us and sending us messages about how you're enjoying this. This really makes me happy as well, because these are topics which have been asked for such a long time. And I'm, I was able to kind of cover a lot of it. So I'm really glad I could. And if you do have any questions, if you enjoy the episode and want to share it with your friends, feel free to do that as well. As always, I do appreciate any comments that you leave uh, for us on our LinkedIn pages or public social media pages. And I look forward to serving you more. So uh, with that said, I will let you get to the episode. And I wanted to thank Exonius and Bridge Crew who are sponsors of this episode. And after that, we'll get into the episode. Stay safe, everyone, and talk to you soon. Oh, by the way, if you are celebrating Onam, happy Onam. Um, this is something that me and my wife celebrated yesterday. And I guess, well, not just me and my wife, but a lot of people around India and people, specifically from Kerala, all over the world did. So if you are someone who's celebrating Onam, happy Onam to you. I hope you and your family have an awesome time celebrating the feast that is prepared by the family. With that said, I'll talk to you in the next episode, and I'll see you soon. Stay safe. Bye. Time is the enemy of security, and that's where Exonius comes in. Exonius helps organizations immediately know what assets they have and shows which devices, cloud instances, and users adhere to or deviate from security policies. Learn more and try it for free at exonius.com. Hey, Cloud Security Podcast, Steve from Bridge Crew here. Check us out to start scanning your infrastructure's code against hundreds of security policies, both on the command line and in your IDE. Bridge Crew also adds security feedback to all your commits and helps you fix misconfigurations in both code and runtime. Hey, John. Welcome, man. How are you going? Good to see you. Great to be here. Okay, good to see you as well. And I hope you have your drink as well, man. Cheers. Cheers. Happy Saturday. I hope everyone's doing well and staying safe. Yeah, I, I hope so. Especially when you're considering you're close to the fires as well. So especially the folks who are around the fire, I hope you feel you, you guys are right. I don't want to screw up your introduction. So I would love to know and introduce you to my audience as well. So who is John Kinsella? Who is John? My name is John. My favorite color is blue. No, so I try to keep these short, dude. What's the short version? I've been in, in AppSec and cloud and operations for the last 20 years. Done a few startups. I was in Silicon Valley. I'm a San Francisco native. I was in Silicon Valley till about a year, year and a half ago. Moved up to Seattle. My specialty last five, 10 years is really around cloud security, container security. I was co-founder of a company called Layered Insights, where we were doing runtime security acquired by Qualys. I've sort of live, breathe, eat in this space, part of Cloud Security Alliance. I've done security work with Apache Software Foundation. I'm now more active with a technical advisory group for both Kubernetes and for Cloud Native Computing Foundation, if I can talk. So <laughs> lots of lots of open source stuff, lots of security stuff, and 
I'm able to do applications in startups as well. So sort of a, a pretty big thing to cover, but I'm still a simple guy and I'm happy to talk about all that. And, and I think that that's why I was looking forward to having you here to talk about something which is probably not spoken about enough online, which is the conversation about monolith, which we're all talking about Kubernetes. We're all talking about what the future is going to be, but people have forgotten about, I don't know, 30, 40 years of programming that we've been enjoying. And uh, it's like suddenly people are like, hey, do we want to leave them behind or, or bring them with us? So maybe to start off with, what do you define as cloud native? Yeah. It's funny, when we were talking in the pre-show, I actually had to go and Google, okay, what do other people think it is? But I've sort of let that sit through my head now. And, and really, to me, what cloud native is building something that's scalable and modern. I'm just going to put it really, box it really tight and say that. I think anyone who's getting into software development now, maybe the professional sort of hacking around, they're going to be playing with more modern languages like uh, JavaScript and uh, TypeScript and Go and, oh, I'm going to leave it out and like someone feel bad, but more modern languages. They're going to be using more modern tools with those, CI, CD, continuous integration, being able to deploy those out, they're going to deploy to that, wait for it, it's coming to the cloud. And that's sort of the very high level. But I think if we actually think about a little more detail what that means, I'll bring in saying things, it's something which is nimble, scalable, I'd say distributed. So those are sort of some of the categoristics. I'll try not to use too many cloud jokes, but sort of a nebulous thing. But that's sort of the structure around of, of how I think of it. I'm so glad you've kind of touched on distributed and nebulous as well. I'm like, wait, are these things that are in monolith? I don't think these things exist in monolith. So how do you define monolith? I think it's for people, because yeah. people may be even going to what is monolith? Why do I even care? Because clearly Kubernetes is the future. It is, right? But you have to remember, like I said, I was doing containers and layered inside before. When I lived in San Francisco, I was six blocks away from Docker's headquarters, I used to go over there all the time. And I really lived in the bubble in Silicon Valley of like all these buzzwords and crazy things. But if you go 100, 150 miles outside, people still have applications were written over the last 10, 20 years, which are trying to support. So if I had to put into a single word what I think of as monolithic, it's sort of actually, as I think of it, it's sort of an anti season, that's how we started. So whereas I'd say cloud native is modern, really uh, a monolith is more legacy. I'm sure people could still write, well, they definitely could still write this stuff today. But so what, what does a monolithic mean in, in my mind? Usually because code base. And you can have a bunch of microservices in one Git repo. So that's not a clear definition by itself. But I'd say where it really comes down, if you've got an application that's doing a bunch of different things. So think about like a shopping cart. If it's not doing something modern and neat and clean, where you're a modern shopping cart, these are products I want to buy. Here's my shipping address and here's my credit card number go, right? The, the catalog yep. and the web display is separate. And what's interesting is us sort of scribbling some notes and thinking about this this chat today. The UI might not be any different between those two things we just talked, right? It's you still yeah. might have a shopping cart, you might have whatever it is, but how those pieces move behind the scenes is A, the exciting point, but also I think what differentiates those two things. Oh, actually that's true because it's not that, I mean, I, I guess you can uh, put a lipstick on the new website and go whatever you want to do, I guess. It looks very fancy, but at the back end, it's still maybe running on mainframe or I don't know, something something even more, I don't know what's ancient than mainframe, which is still running, but probably I, that's one, of the, one thing that I think of. I've actually in this room, I've got my first computer ever, a, a VIC-20. So even that's still not as old as the mainframes, right? Those, the I series and the Z series go back into the 70s. I've got to work on them before, they're pretty cool. But to, to finish, I started interrupting myself there on the, on the shopping cart example. So if we go legacy, I don't know, let's pick, how about an auto supply store? So within that shopping cart, they'd have all their inventory system. There are ERP systems like what's on all our shelves? What have we ordered? What's coming in? I have to be able to do credit card processing. I have to be able to do shipping. I have to be able to do the display of the product in, in the in the web interface or whatever it is and be able to say what's out of stock. But that's all one code base. Yep. So if we want to talk about that versus how you go to microservices, you have a lot of this starts becoming outsourced, right? So you could be using Shopify for the actual cart and, and checkout. ERP is probably going to be a completely different system, right? Especially if you're bigger, it's going to be an Oracle or something. What else? Your web interface is it's going to be light and nimble on something written in JavaScript, not PHP or an ultra language. But all these are little separate pieces, and you can adjust each one individually without having to recompile and re redeploy the whole thing. Oh, actually, that's great because that was the next question that I was going to ask. Like, when people do move Monolith to cloud, I guess in my mind, Monolith is probably millions of lines of code. People have been writing them for years, maybe in a language which is not even supported anymore. And it's a version probably which is 10, 15 versions behind the actual version. I'm like, I don't even, it's funny, every time someone talks about they're working on PHP now, and I'm going, wow, PHP, or is you almost go like, wow, this is going to be, I don't know how you, but apparently there's, there's still applications out there. Even Facebook oh, started yeah. on PHP and they still use PHP. Yeah, well, what 
the the PHP which Facebook has is a pretty special beast nowadays, right? I think that's a pretty strong fork. It's actually compiled. It's not an interpret language anymore. Oh. There's at least one large security company out there that's still a lot of their web interfaces PHP. I won't name names to, to shame people, but it's hard, right? It's because I didn't talk. One of the hats I wear is I'm a, on Application Security Weekly, so yeah. slightly different market set than what you are. And, and hopefully, we can share some guests back and forth or listeners. But thinking about if I put my manager hat on, like nowadays I'm a, a co-founder and CTO of a startup, my focus is to keep both my CEO happy so he has something he can show to VCs and to customers and keep my customers happy, right? So that's really sort of the focus around what I'm trying to do. But what you didn't hear me say there is I've got a ton of time to go back and rewrite something which works in a new language. We start doing a balancing thing here, right? And that's always the problem in, that we start talking through is we want to be able to have something secure. We want to have something scalable. But at the same time, ain't nobody going to rewrite the whole thing. So how do we find this balance? <laughs> To sort of yeah, someone has to spend money on it. Someone has to spend yeah. the time on it. So the balance between, hey, should we release new features or should we go back and change this monolith into like a mm -hmm. microservices? This can, I mean, I, I guess decoupled world of microservices. It's just, yeah. I've got a comment here from Zenith as well. All of that, all of that about cloud native plus architecture builds around microservices. It just, yeah, I, there is so much around the cloud native architecture thing that we can kind of deep dive into. But I, I kind of wanted to have you share some challenges that you think people would face when they're moving a monolith to a microservices from a security perspective. And we're not even you're talking about cloud at the moment. Just like moving from to a microservice, what, what kind of challenges do you reckon people can expect? The top three that came to your mind. The big one is, which I think is really interesting, especially probably to partial of your audience, is we're going from, if you think about how you secure a, a monolith, right? You've got usually a large number of developers and security is probably on another floor or somewhere completely different building. And they're usually thinking about firewalls and intrusion detection and WAFs and antivirus and really sort of more IT security or, or enterprise security. As you start breaking these things down from that monolith into a, a microservices, and we can talk about how, how people go through that, this becomes an application security game, right? So if you think mm -hmm. about cloud security, a lot of cloud security is application security, right? Before I got into cloud security, I was doing a lot of penetration testing and code review and stuff like that, so AppSec. And then this cloud thing came along, I'm like, hey, I, this is sort of cool, I wanna go do that. But besides just the pure AppSec thing, thinking about multi-tenancy, what used to be a single, if we think about a, a monolith deployed into cloud, maybe it's on EC2 instances or GCP, Oh, I'm going to get in trouble. Whatever they call their virtual servers or their Azure equivalent or the smaller guys. I try to give her one fair chance. But as those go into a, a more microservice type environment, you start getting the chance of multi-tenancy. So maybe someone thinks, hey, we're going to go to Kubernetes and put everything in that and then everything's going to be great. But now you might have containers from the marketing department mixed with containers from billing and finance. And I'll let you guess which one of those two is probably going to be more secure. So do you <sighs> want those in the same tenant? knows you have to start dealing with things like that and thinking about things. There's a lot of moving parts, a lot, a lot. I mean, even just talking through what we've talked so far, right? I've said things around CICD and some of these other sort of concepts, but like as you actually start to move and deploy some of these things, the amount of stuff you've got going on is just, it's impossible to really keep track. It's sort of crazy. So I think that's probably one of the bigger things is just for the security people to, we'll, we'll probably talk here a few times about visibility and communication as we go through this, but yep. really just keeping track of what the devs are doing, what tools are they using? What languages are they using? Because as we go towards a microservice, one guy at my startup right now, I've got one founder that's writing in Python, I'm writing in Go, but since we're both writing to serverless lambdas, it doesn't matter as long as we've got an API going back and forth. So, that's but that's right. now two languages which security has to think about. Yeah. So there's a lot of moving. Oh, wow. So you've raised a few good things there then. So obviously the mix of languages and the mixing of architecture as well. Now suddenly you have everyone, I guess coming from a monolith world, Oh, actually, it was while calling out. A lot of people are probably showing uh, people our age, I guess. People would be working in Waterfall to Agile in, uh, in microservices. I don't know if you can do Waterfall in microservices. I don't think you can do, but I'm sure people would have figured it out that I'm going to do a Vagile, as people call it. It's a Waterfall and Agile combined. <laughs> so that maybe that is something that people are doing where we still want to report at the end of what we're going to achieve but I want it to be sprints and uh, whatever you want to call it. But you almost go, so the three things kind of I took away from that was one, obviously the mix of architecture where suddenly you don't have a dedicated server for data database or one server for database application, web application, or you could really have three different servers. Each one gets a container, marketing gets a container, engineering gets a container, but they could be combined or maybe in a cloud native uh, kind of state as well, as you were saying earlier. And then the other challenge you mentioned about the, the, the challenge of languages, how many languages, because I mean, freedom is not a bad thing, like allowing people to work in like, hey, if you code faster and go, 
you should code and go. It, it shouldn't really matter to the interface, which is kind of what the promise of APIs was as well. Like with microservices, it shouldn't really matter. Like you, I could be writing in, I don't know, I'm just going to make up like, or maybe .NET, I'm writing in .NET and you're writing in Go. We should still be able to communicate without you trying to understand the complexity behind .NET. But that means from a security perspective, I need to be, uh, I guess, an API expert, a multiple language expert, if, I'm, if I bring back to your AppSec first uh, conversation as well. And I guess the, other, the, the third thing probably you mentioned is depending on the architecture, how it's moved across. Like if you move like for like, I imagine that would come in a bit more, it would make it more complicated. You kind of have to have microservices which have the decoupled model as well, because I, I can't imagine it working well if it is not decoupled. Everything should be fairly loosely coupled, yeah. And that, that makes some aspects of this more difficult, even not just for security people, but for developers. It's one thing if that set of uh, components, I like to use the phrase puzzle pieces, but if what they are, and they're pretty tightly coupled, testing with them, doing unit tests or integration tests, isn't that, is pretty simple. But as you start making them a little more loosely coupled, you're depending more upon your interfaces. So you have to have more structure in, in some of the those interfaces and APIs and things you're putting together. So it the result's great, right? Because think about, let's think about for a second, scalability. So say the monolithic app, you've got, a, for some reason, a bunch of people are, it's before Christmas, and a bunch of people want to check out, right? So they're going to be hitting that part, that cart, a ton. But the last thing you're going to be doing at the same time probably is bringing new inventory in, right? If you don't have that inventory for a retail company, if you don't have an inventory by what, September, October, you're not getting it for Christmas, right? So they're going to be slowing down on inventory tracking and stuff like that, but that code's still there. If yep. you're more microservice-like, you could just scale up the cart containers and let them do their thing and still have two or three ERPs, to use that example. So it allows you to be more flexible in that type of way as a result, and that's sort of the benefit of it. Oh, yeah. actually, that's true, because not all the components of your code would need to be out always be updating or just yeah. refreshing, I guess, because I mean, I guess that's why it's a monolith because you can still have 25 years old, old code, which doesn't need to move or updated. It just gets left behind and you just keep adding on top of it. Like, I guess almost like different layers of a cake, I guess, but you just always focus on the top layer. So that makes me go then, okay, so we spoke about monolith to microservices, but monolith to like a cloud native, breaking it down. So I, I imagine there are similar challenges at that point then, I guess, would you say things like having multiple languages being used is slowly becoming a challenge then, I guess, and for security, even if it's in cloud native space or are the challenges different if you've moved from monolith to, we're going to break this application into a Kubernetes or a serverless application. I, I can't even imagine like what would happen in that way. So application security, definitely a big uh, challenge, but I'm keen to know from your side, what would you think of three things at that point from a security perspective? Yeah, we'll keep repeating ourselves here. The benefits to this is huge. Getting there is, can be, it, this isn't simply, we're spending an hour sort of ripping through all these sort of topics. One thing I want to throw into your show notes, and we'll probably talk about towards the end. Adrian Cockroft, man, the dude's been through so much stuff. He was at Sun. I think he was one of the core people behind Java. He went over to Netflix. He was the, I think if not CTO, chief architect, cloud architect. So he sort of brought Netflix to the cloud. About, about 10 years ago, he did a talk. It's like an hour 15, hour 20, depending on which version of this you get, just about how you take a microservice and sort of peel off pieces slowly by slowly and turn those pieces into microservices. And that's how you get from this monolith to the microservice architecture. So he talked about an hour just for that by itself, and we're sort of going right through here. So let's see what we can do. But if we thought about three things in a public cloud, I mean, obviously, I don't want to expose Kubernetes or whatever you're having out to the, the public interface. I think one of the big things to me is to not reinvent wheels. What do I mean by that? I don't want people to go through and start creating their own load balancers. I mean, if we think about this back in, in enterprise day, people probably are gonna be creating their own firewalls or IDSs. They're gonna be buying the boxes, right? So Silicon Valley style, but you have to have the box. And once we go to the cloud, the box goes away. But what I've seen is people start creating that thing themselves. So either building their own Kubernetes clusters or building Nginx for a load balancer or one of the open source WAFs out there is a bunch of different ones. Really my point here is unless you've got a lot of time or a very specific reason to do that, use what the cloud providers have because they're just building it with some of the brightest people in the world. It's being used by some of the largest companies. So it's probably going to handle what you're doing. And a lot of the stuff we're talking about, especially as you start changing languages and like we're just talking purely from a point of view of how would you go about rewriting the PHP into Go or something. One of the things we completely glossed over is you're introducing, there's pretty much no way you're going to rewrite that app without bringing bugs in. One of the things I've got for the news next week, there's a new vulnerability patched now. Or no, they're still working on, well, it's patched, but they're working on releasing the patch in glibc. But the fun part about this is where this came from. Someone else found another bug 
I think it was in March. They patched and released that version glibc, but it turns out the patch has a vulnerability in it. They do a null pointer dereference. So it's like, uh, this is one of those things, right? Every time you breathe or touch some of these things, even if you're really good people, I think this guy was at, I'll say, I think he was at Red Hat. So again, great companies, but it, it's, you got to be on your toes. So let's see. So I talked about don't reinvent the wheel. Don't expose yourself on public internet like exposing. One of the common issues that people were seeing with Docker and Kubernetes and security was they were leaving that port open on, on the internet without being firewalled. And the crypto miners really appreciate that because they're more than, well, more than willing to come in and use your resources to run their own mining. So you don't want to do that. And then let's see if I want to throw another one out there spe specifically for public is you got to start thinking about isolation more. So we talked about multi-tenancy a little bit, but even just how do you isolate, say, either a network or compute between two containers? And then the second half of that is not just isolation, but also... I was interviewing at a company 10, 15 years ago, and it was right before Redis Cloud was getting big. And they're like, what would you do if you came in here? And the first thing I said is I want VPNs between all your... At that point, it was EC2 instances. Yep. And I was basically laughed out of the room. But nowadays, right, if, if you're in a public cloud, we've seen a few times that every now and then either a malicious user or possibly a government will get involved internally in, in somewhere they shouldn't be and are able to sniff traffic. It has to be encrypted. It makes a developer's life, well, it makes an operator's life a little more difficult for troubleshooting things if there's actually an issue going on. Yep. But it, we're at a point where you, you got to, that trust boundary has to be very, very. Wow. That's, those are interesting because I think as you were talking about this, I also realized we kind of touched, brushed upon something else as well, where yeah. the traditional world has always been about vulnerability management, IPSs, and moving this to cloud for a monolith. A, a lot of people would, and I, I've been asked this question, so I'm curious to know your response. Like, hey, when do I do a third-party app versus using something from the cloud provider? If I'm moving across, say I've already got a bunch of security products in my on-premise. I got the, just like throw a word, trend micro, antivirus, and something. I mean, just think of, think of a security product that's worked in a traditional world for a long time. And now I'm ready to go to the cloud and I'm going, actually, obviously the obvious question that a lot of people are asking themselves is like, hey, should I continue with my third-party app or should I buy a new third-party app? Or should I just go to cloud native, like as in something provided by the cloud provider for security? I would strongly lean towards changing. So it, it's funny, we talked about the, the boxes and all those box vendors, if you go out to like the Amazon, go talk about Amazon, just keep it simple. But if you go talk about, if you look at the Amazon marketplace, all those box vendors, they've got the software version of that box. They're happy to sell you. But in some cases, that's fine, right? And antivirus is probably a good example. Antivirus is antivirus. You're still looking for a pattern, you're looking for some sort of pattern against your signatures usually. And, and then that, that's how you do that. Keep in mind, if you're doing that, you're now paying a cloud service to run your antivirus software. So you gotta be a little careful about when do you want to actually use it, right? That that's what the trick's there. Do you want AV on your server? It's a bit of a religious question. I come from the, the vendor side, not even currently, but just previous lives where I've built cloud native security tools, right? So I don't want to make it look like I'm, I'm biased here, but really at the end of the day, a tool which has been designed from the get-go for either cloud or cloud native, it does things in different ways. It thinks about scalability different. It thinks about usability, authentication, logging, debugging, all those sort of usability concepts, APIs. You're not going to see as much of those in the, well, hey, here we can go. We can call the legacy security products almost monolithic security products, haha. So I would at least, I think it's worth a review, right? It's worth looking to see what, what are getting high ratings out there? What are people using? Do you have to buy a box or can you use something open source? Do you really need to be using that in public cloud? So there, there's a few different things around there you can think about. Another example to throw at you, if you're in a high security environment on-prem, you've probably got a few HSMs around, right? Hardware security modules to put all your keys and key management stuff in. You can now get those in the cloud, but boy, how do you, they're not cheap. And for folks who've used HSMs, they usually want to have failover in case one fails. You have to have two of those bad boys. So you're really paying a lot of money. It's last I checked, it's into thousands of dollars per month US. Oh. So if you need it, you need it. There's cheap ways to do it. Then the question is, do you need the full HSM or can you just use Amazon's um, security management and just put a token in there, which costs like 40 cents a month. So yeah. pretty big difference, but that that's some of the things that sort of people have to think. You, you raised an interesting point over there because the whole benefit that was... Like it's a dream that was sold by cloud was that, hey, it's going to be cheaper, more agile, more flexible. And that's kind of, I, I feel like in a way, and I, I feel comfortable telling you this because I feel I won't be aged out, I guess, in a way. But the interesting thing for me was when people move into cloud, that's when microservice kind of happened. Agile methodology happened around the same time. And people still kind of forgot, hey, that's all great, but I still want to do what I was doing before because that's what I know and that's what I'm comfortable with. So I, so. Are we agreeing on the fact that that's probably not the right approach in cloud to continue trying to recreate what we had on premise? So I think I did one of the earlier cloud talks I did was how do you how do you migrate to cloud? And I wasn't thinking about the monolith at the time, but now I think about it 
probably same idea, was do you want to forklift that application over and put it in the, and continue doing your things? And there's value there, right? I mean, Amazon's got a whole division that'll happily take your money to run VMware on Amazon. I mean, people on Twitter, they really get angry about this. There's a phrase they use, VMware Cloud is allowing the ongoing support of legacy end-of-life software, <laughs> which is, that, that that's a fighting phrase right there. I'm, I'm not going to yeah. take a, a position on it. But so yeah, you can do that. You can just pick up and go over and drop down and go. That'll get you out of the data center. People have this conversation about it. Cloud's more expensive. I've run a cloud. I have, one of my startups was actually built a cloud. I know the costs. Good luck. But so do you want, you can pick it up and move over and then maybe start peeling off the edges. But it definitely, for two reasons, you want to look at this from a new technology, right? For your own career, for the folks out there who are like my age or older or younger, I don't think it matters. If you want to keep going for a few more years, what tech are people using? This is something I do every few months. I just go and look, am I using the tech that I want to be using? Should I be dropping something and picking up something new? This laptop we're on today is a Apple Silicon. Up until a few months ago, I was on standard MacBook Pro, Intel. So look and change. I didn't get it when it first came out. I want to see what other people think, but I do the same thing with cloud. Do I want to go to Alley Clouds? Do I want to go maybe start the, one of the new concepts we have going around is people putting compute probably in Amazon and they've got fast storage. But then if you want a really great network, you go and you put that in Google. So different clouds have different sort of versions. If you want to do like fast databases or cheap databases, maybe put that in Oracle. Yeah. But since we're now microservice and cloud-based and API-based and the networks are pretty damn reliable, not perfect, but pretty good, right? And pretty high speed. You can have leave your API server in Amazon with doing your crunchy crunchy, then maybe have the database server on Oracle. Yep. Uh, in some cases, that'll totally make sense. So that's, there, there's things you can look at and not just on the security side, but it, it's worth sort of taking a step back every now and then. And mm -hmm. am I doing things the best way? So that's an interesting point because I wonder how often people go back and look at, oh, actually, this is not really not going back, but looking forward for, hey, what else is going on? In a way, glad you mentioned it for people who are trying to have like, a, I guess, a career for another 10, 15 years, maybe even longer to keep an eye, especially if you're in technology, it makes sense to keep an eye out for what, what's out in the horizon, which is kind of like the top topic of the month, like talking about cloud native, because how many people that I've spoken to are still are, probably don't have the opportunity to work with Kubernetes or any of the newer tech or maybe even serverless. And you, but I, and you and I can talk, talk about this, but Kubernetes has been there for some time already. It's not that it was released this, it's been there for some time. It got massive adoption this year. There's another massive wave coming next year as well, I imagine. And so does uh, some of the other cloud native projects. So I, in a way, I'm glad you meant that you mentioned and I guess grateful to people who are listening and going, hey, what else is out there? So I, I, this makes me think of another set of people who probably are getting inspired by this and going around in their, I guess, architecture and looking, what else, what kind of software do we have or what kind of applications are we running? And they realize, hey, we already have cloud native. So, and it's like, oh, it's one of those classic examples where Maybe security was not called in. Someone swiped the credit card, moved to cloud, or maybe cloud native. And I, I think it is an easier place to start tackling this problem. Like, I mean, I, I guess to your point, I'm assuming this person maybe from a monolith world, it has been an on-premise for 25 plus years and suddenly finds out, hey, there's AWS. Oh, okay. I'll just ask around questions like, oh yeah, we're using EKS, the Kubernetes service, whatever. I mean, I mean, you don't have, I know it's like, so we're not specifically talking about the service, but the whole concept that, oh, actually I discovered today that I'm in cloud native. What, what are some of the starting things that I should be looking at, which would be stark difference between like a on-premise for cloud, cloud native kind of world? I've been saying this a lot recently. I think I'm going to be saying it for a few years. I like to tease some of my friends over at Amazon. Guys, how do you keep up with the amount of products which Amazon is releasing or, or do you? Because like I can't. There was a, a post which came out last week, just a single post. It's supposed to be one in a chain of 18 new controls, which they're providing security controls over, cloud, over Amazon products. And their intention to keep releasing these blog posts until they've got security controls across the whole fleet. And that's just security controls. And we're not talking about, I think it's what, 180 products or some crazy number? now so almost yeah i feel lucky in a way that i got into this beast early because uh, yeah i started just with docker right and i did docker and docker swarm for a few years and then at some point i dipped my toe into the kubernetes thing and that's a whole separate world right for people for people out there who've done what do we talk about a cloud stack they've probably seen this sort of pattern before and we'll probably see it again but i think if i was going to answer that question start with docker on the desktop just keep it really simple I think that's the container is enough like a, a VM or an operating system that for folks who've been around it, it's pretty approachable and pretty understandable to understand what's going on in there. And the previous CEO over at Docker had a phrase, Steve Singh, a great phrase, which I've used so many times again, but additive collaboration. The idea, and I've done this in classes, right? Where like you, you have help someone write a Docker compose file where you say, okay, download this MySQL container image from Docker Hub. Download, I don't know, let's see, let's talk about Node.js and, and not pick on Java. So 
a database plus node. Let's write a little bit of JavaScript and, and put that in a file and have that mounted in and have those three things run and expose that on port 80 and then type docker compose space up. And that simply, you've got a working web app, right? It's, you didn't have to build or install or do anything with MySQL. Same with Node. You probably have to download some Node modules, right? But still, it's compared to a full, actually, if we had to do this five, 10 years ago on an EC instance, it's very quick to get going. And what's nice about that is not just that it's quick, but I know, at least for me, if I'm able to quickly see changes or see results from what I'm doing, it, it excites me. It makes me want to do more of that. So I think that's a great starting point. And then at some point, you're going to run into either networking issues or scaling issues. So then maybe start looking at Kubernetes, right? And that's sort of how you go up that path. But now let's talk about the security side of that thing. When you go out to Docker Hub, or when you go out and you're doing, you're getting your, that MySQL container. Let's talk about just going ahead and doing a, uh, a container scan of it. So either, I believe now for free on the popular images, Docker will and display that vulnerability data. So you can see that, see what that looks like. You can go ahead and figure out, okay, is that something I need to patch? How would I go about patching it? And get a sense in there. Okay, you're back. I saw you disappear for a second. I want to start talking from um, not just how do you get going in containers or Kubernetes, but let's go back and talk about the security side. So vulnerability scanning, right? That's our basis. What's going on? What's in there? What's installed? What's vulnerable? Download that container, figure out how to get a shell into it. Look at what packages are installed, right? Pure OS thing. And then next you start thinking about, okay, well, how do I want that thing running? Maybe go and think about, okay, how can I control it? Is it going to run as root? What happens if someone can break out of that container? How would they? Okay, now they have control over my host. Can they see other stuff? So there's that aspect. And then you can think about firewalling that thing again. So it's, again, some of those sort of basic concepts. And that's probably to learn project-wise, personally. So mm -hmm. either find a project, find something you're interested in. Usually when I'm at home, I have like some sort of IoT thing around. I'm like, get an IoT thing or a robot or something and create a weekend project and sort of play and see how this stuff works. But from someone doing it, as part of their you know, day job sitting at a desk, think about, we talked about those boxes, think about how would you apply that to MySQL node combination? Okay, how do, if I want to put an IDS in this thing, how do I do it? If I want to do that in Kubernetes, how do I do it? If I want to do it in public cloud, right? So you've got, there's a concept. So now the thing is, how do you take that concept and apply it to a new technology? So that's sort of the way I'd approach. And that's really what I do when I'm, I'm learning new languages myself. Right now we're using, in the past I've done, let's see, for IAC, infrastructure as code. I've used a Puppet, I've used Chef, I've used Ansible, I've used Terraform, CloudFormation. So all these sort of beasts out there at, at the current company, uh, SciSense, we're looking at using Amazon CDK oh, yeah. uh, cloud development kit. And it's a pretty neat thing, right? But so as I said, I've done these things in other languages before. I've used the cloud. And usually what I'll do is I'll go through and sort of pointy clicky, figure out what my role should be between say the Lambda and a database to get that stuff to work. Okay, how do I turn that into right? Mm. So okay, I've, I know the concepts, I know it's an IAM, or I know it's a security group, or I know I want to open a port or something like that. And it, it's pieces which I know about. But now how do I take that sort of part of my brain and apply it against a new language? So I think it's sort of the same for security people. I love how you explain this, because I'm thinking about from, I, I guess, going back to that individual's example, the persona that I just created out of thin air, coming from an on-premise world, you would already know some concepts. You already know networking. You already know how to service communicate. It's just about using that foundational piece to understand, hey, how does this work over in this context, whether it's Docker, Kubernetes or whatever, there is still an identity, there is still a network to the point that there's a one-to-one -one relationship between what we have spoken about before. I think I've got a question from quickly addressing yeah. that. So speaking of patches, why the AWS SSM manager service doesn't wear patches and if of situations in your career where it was caused you issues such as denial of service? Mm. So I haven't used the patch management side of SSM. I'm familiar with it, know what it did. My previous company was Qualys, who they're probably one of the first cloud-based vulnerability management companies. So I'm sort of familiar with the patch management space. And let's, let's I don't have a direct answer I'm going to bring an answer into that, but let's go back and talk about what I was just saying about vulnerability scanning of these containers. So I was talking about going to Docker Hub, take a look at it. If you want a little more experience, maybe go out and get a copy of Claire or Trivi, which are both open source vulnerability scanners, or go and put your container on Quay at Red Hat or Amazon in their ECRs. You can look at it's all sorts of ways to do this stuff. But what's sort of fun to bring up and talk about is if you scan, oh, I don't know, let's say a Debian container, if you can find like a Debian version or Ubuntu version of MySQL or what else, a few sort of more common, maybe like a HTTPT, not like an Alpine version, but like a, a version that has a full heavyweight container behind it. Right. So what you're seeing with containers, right? Container image, usually a version of Debian in a container is about 70 or 80 megabytes. But if you look at the slim, sorry, who am I kidding? Probably about 120, 150 megabytes. If you look at the slim version of it, it's probably about 30 to 50 megabytes. If you look at the Alpine Linux version, it's about, about 12. So there's reasons to use different versions of these same things. But if we look at the, the Debian or the, the Ubuntu version, it's probably going to say there's a vulnerability in PCRE, the Perl regular expression library. 
that CVE, I want to say, is from 2017. And we're now in 2021 still. It's hard to keep track with this COVID and stuff. But so, okay, you're telling me about a vulnerability from five years ago. You're really going to tell me that hasn't been patched. So there's there's issues with some of these scanners is what I'm saying. And that takes a little bit of common sense just to go through and talk that story. And I've seen it at a previous company. A junior engineer did the scan. It wasn't cleaning. There was security mandates that you have to be able to be a certain level of security. So obviously that vulnerability has to be patched. The dude went and manually downloaded a version of PCRE and was compiling and putting it into a container. I'm like, no, it's a false positive. Don't, no, 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 right? But that takes some level of experience in the space to be able to, to recognize that and do it. And when I was at Qualys, man, I probably had that conversation with about 10 or 20 customers, not with our product, but like with, like I said, the open source scanners, they see this. It's, it's hard to fix some of these signatures. So there's there's issues around patch management in all sorts of different ways, Finkit. So the question comes down to having some level of experience about what's going on, what's it doing, what guardrails can you put in there? If anyone can put a patch into that system, what you'll, the pattern I'll frequently talk about to, to people using Amazon is, okay, maybe you don't expose SSM directly for people to be uploading patches into, but you put some sort of a software package in front where they suggest a patch, and then you go and you vet it and sign it and then put it into the SSM system, right? So you have some level of control about what's going in there. And so that's sort of the, the trick around how to do some of that type of stuff. The DOS part, I haven't specifically seen in these use cases, but I mean, like the one that's coming to mind right now, was it McAfee AV? About two, three years ago, they released an update to their AV software on, I think it was for Dell systems, and it bricked the machines. So so how, how's that for a DOS for you, right? These things are out there. It doesn't even have to be cloud-based. And it's, yep. how do you, right? It really comes down to testing is the other side of that. So I talked to A about vetting and control and not just exposing that API out to anybody. But then on the second side, one of the things I really like about either containers or I'm using now with Amazon SAM for Lambda is being able to do sort of red-green deployments. So with that container thing, these things are so light and nimble and quick. When we go to release a new version of the product, maybe it has those patches in a new version. We, we updated the, the base container image because we wanted to get some vulnerabilities fixed. Okay, so instead of just rolling that out to, say, 100 hosts with 1,000 containers on it, let's roll it out to about 5%. And both Docker now and Kubernetes will let you do what's called a health check or define a health check. Basically, as part of that container coming up, wait until a HTTP gets to some URL returns a, a thumbs up or some sort of positive value. If you see that, okay, the application's up and running, then you can go ahead and roll it out to the rest of your containers. If you didn't see that, hey, maybe we want to roll back and double check and see what's going on. So there's ways to do some of these tests around this type of stuff. Actually, you've kind of touched upon really interesting things from an architecture perspective as well. And by the way, that's a great question as well, because I think yeah. as I'm kind of listening to John, your answer, I'm going, oh, wow, okay. You're right, because we used to do this in on-premise where we would have a strategy for patch management. You don't directly get everything. There is a testing phase, and then it gets released out to everyone. It's like that push button thing. And we can still have that same model in cloud and cloud native uh, kind of applications as well. And to your point about the other one that you mentioned from a patching perspective was the whole blue green thing. That was, I mean, you can have a small set of servers, but use cloud native services. And I, I think to what, what you're trying to get to as well, you can still have them automate that through thousands of servers, but almost still have like a, that testing foundation done, especially if you're doing it, dealing in a monolith. Because I, I, I think that, the model that AWS kind of talks about, hey, we are, you don't have to worry about patches. We take care of everything. But mm. even in that scenario, RDSs, I'm using as an example, the databases, they've asked us to have a maintenance window, which we should be completely okay with to have them patch our servers and hopefully bring that back on. And this is a database. So I imagine how important that would be for any company out there. So even, uh, I haven't actually heard of a denial service in that case, but I think to your point, it's always, I, I guess, moving to cloud, the model should always be that, hey, I should be able to test this. And I, I like a blue-green, if you want to use that as an example, I should be able to blue-green this. And the whole con immutable architecture that people talk about, where it's decoupled, you're going back to your shopping cart example, just because your inventory is failing doesn't really mean your shopping cart should fail because I, you still want the customer to be able to go and fully complete the transaction of the, of the, of the inventory that they have already added to their cart. That blue-green thing, I'm not just dreaming that up. That's literally built into Kubernetes. That's the way we do modern deployments. You can say, hey, once X percentage is reporting a positive health, go ahead and roll it out to the rest. That's an automation. That might take us a little bit to, excuse me, that's sort, something sort of new and something we have to figure out the first time that we've never done that in the past, right, on desktops. Well, maybe you might, what, I guess the way I would have done it was I'd patch my system, but I definitely wasn't patching my boss's system. So, right, you do that type of thing and make sure things are fine. And then once you sort of lose it for a few days, things are good, then you go and roll out. But now it's actually, it's part of the, the, the concept, which is really great. It's really good as well that, by the way, I'm just going to kudos to Zine and others as well who are thinking of using services which are cloud services 
I mean, I guess because that kind of forces you to kind of go into a, into a direction. You have to decide on, hey, how do I automate this so I don't have to look after patching for thousands of service. So it's I, I think kudos to you for doing that as well, Zenith. While we've been talking about the patching as well, and we we're talking about the monolith application, that made me think about from perspective that the whole DevSecOps thing that people talk about, right? Because I feel like now the industry is kind of like three big buckets. I, I mean, I'm sure they're SOC and everything else in there, but people are primarily talking about cloud security, application security. And as people talk about application security, with because everyone's going serverless, so application security is a lot more bigger bubble than what it used to be. And now going, hey, how do I do DevSecOps and all this, right? Because I think I'm sure there's a DevSecOps fan out there listening and yes, we should do DevSecOps. <laughs> is that even a thing? for a monolith application, where, or is it only after it moves into it? Let's drag the nails on the chalkboard a little bit for a second and, and try to call <laughs> it sec DevOps and see who sort of erupts at us. And, and by the way, folks, we've got about, what, 10, 10, 12 minutes left in here. We love questions. Keep them coming. I love, but we've got stuff we can talk about. We can talk all day, but give us questions. What's in your mind? That That's what makes us fun and interesting. Yep. So DevSecOps, just think about the DevOps part of it for a second. When we're talking about those monoliths, if we're looking at hundreds of thousands of lines of code, those things frequently, the build cycle, you're looking at hours from the time you use tape, type make and, and go off to grab your coffee or lunch before that thing's actually done. And the reason I mention this is if you're in a, a modern CI process where, let's talk about modern CIs. I, I throw these buzzwords around. I'll use GitHub as an example. Uh, so every time when I check in code or do a, a code push, I'm going to push into a branch because I'm not allowed to push to the main code tree. And then in that, I have actions or GitHub rules set up. So when it sees that new code come in, it's going to try and compile it. Let's make sure the damn thing compiles. We're going to lint it to make sure that we're following best practices, both code-wise as well as no outstanding like hard-coded passwords and stuff like that. If we're a little more advanced as we go through this maturity process, we might have like, let's do some static analysis, uh, see if there's any obvious SQL injections or things like that. Maybe go a little bit forward, further and do like an actual integration test. Can we actually run some unit tests against it? Make sure that a standard suite of, of code tests work and we maintain say 75-80% test code coverage. So these are the type of things I talk about when I say this. And then once that's done and goes green, we can click a button, have it merge into our main branch, and then I can click another button and have that bad boy automatically shot over to Amazon Lambda or ECS or let's see EKS or you get the idea either two containers yep. or serverless but that's just clicks right and if I have full trust once that code is merged I can have it run that automatically so this is what gets us these very updated very quick things right if I see a bug in a bit of code could be either a typo on, on a site or I want to change some color or something and I can do that little process I talked about from check out the code open a bug modify a few lines of code, go ahead and commit and push it with that bug ID, goes in, it goes through a CI process, maybe that takes four or five minutes, I merge it, and it goes out. We've done probably multiple code releases during us talking here over the last 45 minutes. So that's what yep. I'm talking about when I talk about modern CI. So back to that monolith bad boy, let's see. So the compiler would probably take, like I said, in some cases, at least half an hour, if not an hour, that might time out in GitHub, but you can probably pay for more resources or you can have your, yeah. your tests run on, on Amazon. But that's just the compile. Now, if I want to go through do the static analysis, that's basically another compile. So in that previous life, when I was doing pen testing and code review, I used to use a lot of uh, Fortify SCA. And for him to test a large code base, it was another go and grab a coffee or lunch. So I've grabbed, let's see, breakfast for just doing the compile. I had to grab lunch to do the Fortify scan. And then like, there's probably some other process and there's probably going to be at least dinner, right? So you can do DevSecOps, but, and that might be a good way to start, right? It's just, let's have the code be built every time or scanned every time we go through this process. You're going to have a lot of pain, right? And maybe it'll give you the chance to see how this stuff works and get some of these pieces in place and then give you a really great use case of, hey man, I've got to spin up an instance that runs for three hours to compile my code. That's an EC2 M4 extra large, which probably costs about four or five bucks an hour. I'm making this up, but wrong with me. So that means every time I go to compile my code, it's costing about five to 10 bucks. Yep. You go back and tell your boss that, you suddenly have a pretty good use case to uh, go and actually start peeling off some of these microservices, right? So yeah. that, that's how you go about some of these things, depending on, on where you are in the organization. Yeah, I think that's, a, I, I love the example as well. And kind of the way you mapped out the amount of time it would take to deploy it. Yeah, probably one of the reasons why a lot of people wanted to move across as well. I think, I feel like we may have gotten people a lot of excited excitement with like, hey, this is like uh, a lot of stuff used to or learn from. Is there, mm -hmm. I, I actually don't know if there's any, anything that you can learn about Monolith. No one really talks about Monolith as a thing. So are there like, maybe let's start with what, what's a mature migration or I guess successful migration, if you want to call it. In your mind, what's a mature migrated monolith in the cloud or cloud native world look like? And we'll probably dig it from there. So what does that look like when people have successfully moved it across? I'm pragmatist. So I'm not going to say that 
let's call it a hundred, let's call it a million lines of code. I mean, you could say the end story is no applica- no functions with more than 1500 lines of code. I don't want to go that way. Let's look at this pragmatically. Which parts of your application are you, the way you go about peeling those onion layers off is which part am I changing a lot? Which part do we need to modify or, or bring in some new code? Maybe you need to start talking to a third party API, or maybe you need to expose an API and you don't want to expose an API for a whole app. Excuse me. There's a reason you could do this, but let, let's, Let's go from that point of view. This is what Adrian talks through in that video. So the next one would be, okay, we've got that most important one. We've got that to a microservice so we can update it quickly without waiting the, the day each time. And then find the next one and next one and next one. At some point, you're going to realize that whatever's left in that model, we haven't had to touch that two or three weeks. And maybe it's still at this point, 500,000 lines of code or 700,000 lines of code. But whatever that guy's doing, he's just doing it. And that's like a little more legacy. We don't have to update it. We can update the stuff around the edge. So that to me is how I would look at, at something like this, right? Have the big piece of code run on an EC2 instance, like I said, and put your more modern stuff into serverless. So one of the things we've been uh, thinking about and talking through at my current place is how do we go about, where do we want to use serverless versus a container, right? I don't want to run Kubernetes unless I have to. I love it. I know it. But if I don't have to spin that thing up, let's, let's keep it away. So in a Lambda instance for us, you can have a Lambda that'll run up to 15 minutes, um, default mm-hmm. the timeout is five minutes, but it's probably going to be a, a function, right? So it's going to be doing a specific thing for me. Will it be an example? If someone posts something on an S3 bucket, it'll grab a copy of and do crunchy, crunchy, and then store it in a database. So, right, that's a very specific task. But then maybe the next thing, maybe if I'm going to run a scan against a, a large cloud instance, I know it's going to take more than 15 minutes. So let's put that into a container, right? So the container's sitting there. He's listening to a message queue. The Lambda instance sees the incoming request for the scan. He puts something onto the message queue. The container sees it, grabs it, spends the next 30, 40 minutes doing the scan, puts something into S3 bucket. Another Lambda grabs it, does the crunchy, crunchy back into a database. We're starting to build up a picture here, right? So this is sort of the way I think about it. And at some point, maybe what are mainframes good at? They're really great at crunching really huge amounts of data. So maybe we do our quarterly reports are still done on the mainframe and he just sits there and and once a month we go and we download all the data from the RDS database at Amazon into our local DB2. I'm sure I'm giving someone out there some sort of like post-traumatic, really sorry about that. But some of these things still need to be done. And I think that's sort of how I think about it, right? Is don't move, don't be looking to move everything. Look to keep your eyes at like, what's my prize? What am I trying to do? I'm not just using technology for the sake of it. There's a reason we're doing this. So what is that? And let's make sure we set the bounds around what that is. So that's how I think of it. Oh, I love the answer. And I think I was talking to someone about this recently as well. And he introduced me to the concept of cost of delay. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a whole idea. Oh, I haven't, but keep going. Oh yeah. yeah. So the, 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 the cost of delay uh, was really interesting. What, what they spoke about was that the time you would spend as an organization to say uplift something, which to your point, like let's just use a mainframe example, which have been crunching numbers for so many years. In the time spent to replace mainframe with say a serverless or something else, is that really time worth giving an advantage to a competitor just because you wanted to uplift the code? Yes, you feel really happy that you've uplifted or monolithic code to say something really modern. You can do blue-green and everything, but what's the point when you've lost to the customer or you've lost to the competition? So it's about finding that balance as well. I think that's probably a great way to kind of come to a close as well. But that's probably one one of my, it's going to be a highlight for me for, for, for this one. People, uh, is there like an education thing that you can talk about as well? Where like, if people are listening to this yeah. and going, hey, where do I learn about this uh, stuff? Is there something that of which you can probably direct people to as well? So there, there's a few different ones. I'll give you a link for the one of Adrian's talks about this, how you peel the, the onion layers off. I think that's, I mean, it's what, 10 years later, I'm still talking about that talk. So it's got to be a good talk. That's a great place. Yeah. As you're getting interested in cloud security, I'd say two things. Cloud Security Alliance, I'm, I've helped write some of the earlier versions of their how to use cloud securely. I'm still active in some of their work groups over there. They've got a ton of different work groups and research areas. And also people, not just for learning, if you want to get involved and help with these things, people of all levels, please, will take and then the third one I'd say would be CNCF. We've got, a, like I said, this group called Tag Security, a technical advisory group for security. Come in, ask questions. We're on Slack. We've got weekly meetings. If you're trying to figure out how to secure something or you think you see a bug or you want to help with documentation, again, any open source project will take help of any level. So I, I think that's how I'd, I'd suggest that. Awesome. That's okay. I think if people have questions, I'm going to come back as well later because it's going to be on live on YouTube after this. So it's going to drop questions as well or com- as comments. That'll be awesome as well. I do have one last section that I go through with people. It's a fun section. It's just three questions. So it'll be super quick, hopefully. And this is just to get John a little better outside of technology, I guess. But the first question is, what do you spend most time on when you're not working on cloud and cloud native and technology in general? I'll give you two things. Cooking. I love to cook. Right. First came down to sil- 
When I first came down to Silicon Valley, I was actually going to make my millions and then go open a restaurant. I read Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential and I decided that was a horrible idea. If I'm not doing that, I like to do things with my hands, so I'm also a lot of woodworking. But if not those two, I'm out on a bike. So Awesome. Uh, I need to get some cooking lessons for you, especially helpful with the lockdowns, I guess. The second question, what is something that you're proud of but is not on your social media? Proud of but not on my social media. On woodworking here, I've like I said, I've, I've like working my hands. I've just finished a what's called a Nakami, Nakamiji style live edge walnut table that's about, let's see if I talk metric. It's about two and a half meters long by about a meter and a half wide. So it's this very big, probably about 500 pound table, dining room table. Wow. So yeah, I'm pretty proud of that. That hasn't, they'll probably go out into Reddit in the next month or two once I get it set up. And so that's sort of- On your own. Yeah. So bought wow. two, uh, I bought the, the walnut came as uh, two slabs in half. So basically how do you glue those things together? How do you flatten them? How do you fill in all the gaps and make sure it's not going to crack or things like that in the future? And, yeah. Really interesting. I'm finding like a lot of technology people are going towards more creative things or more like the handiwork kind of things as well as people kind of like, there's enough technology just writing softwares, but something doing with your hand is a, I guess, charm to it, I guess, for lack of a better it's word. It's gratifying, right? To actually see something. So in woodworking for me, one of the most amazing moments is when you have something finished and sanded and you put that first coat of finish on it, whether it's an oil or a stain and like the wood just pops and comes alive. And you're like, wow, this is this thing I've been looking at under sawdust and, and scraps of wood for months. is like, that's actually something beautiful. So yeah, it's, it's a really cool thing to do. Awesome. Uh, uh, and one last question, because it's probably best as well, because you're into cooking. What's your favorite cuisine or restaurant that you can share with us? Favorite restaurant would be Alinea in Chicago. I got to go there many years ago. It's a really great place. Probably one of the best in the US. If I had to pick a style of food, I can eat sushi for weeks. Okay. I think I'll do the same as well. I think it's, it's funny to, to the comment about me about talking about technology and people looking for creative stuff. I just want to give a shout out, shout out to Zenith because she's written a children's book as well. So people should definitely check her out. So it was top 10 in Amazon as well. And coming from a cybersecurity background, writing a book about children, like a children's book. So give me a shout out to you as well. But that, that's pretty much what we had time for. And where can people find you on social media? Easiest is Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn out there as well, but Twitter is sort of the, the more fun stuff, hopefully. John L. Kinsella, John L. Kinsella, you'll probably see in the notes. Yeah, feel free to say hi. I'm on Instagram as well, but that's more sort of less techie type. That's more woodwork, I imagine. Yeah. Cooking more. Awesome. But I really enjoyed uh, this session because I, I think I'm, I'm so glad we searched on the monolith topic as well. And thank you to everyone who watched and basically came up with the questions as well. Because I think it's always interesting to kind of hear what other people have to say. If you have did not get to see this live and you're watching this later on, feel free to drop a comment. I'm sure I can get that to John. But this has been really fun for me and I'm looking forward to having you again, John. Thanks for coming in. I'd love to. Thank you. Take right. care and All stay right. safe. Thanks, everyone. Bye. <laughs>